Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 154, the anatomy of hope, part two, continuation of the sixth element of our anatomy. Hope is counterintuitive. I guess if you wanted to add a couple C's to this, you could say that hope is the cryptocurrency of the kingdom of God, but that's another time. We, we're never finished with the anatomy of hope because the scriptures are themselves a chronicle of hope. Hope is counterintuitive continued. Hope in the biblical sense is often a counterintuitive expectation. In the words of Paul in Romans 4.18, and this is a central verse to express that counterintuition. Romans 4.18, Abraham, quote, against hope, with hope, he believed. Abraham, and he's going to become featured in Hebrews 6.13 to 15, and then again in Hebrews 11.8 to 19 in the near future, Again, to illustrate the counterintuition of hope, Romans 4.18, Abraham was said against or contrary to hope, with hope he believed. So contrary to what would be an intuitive hope, or even in one sense a reasonable hope, he hoped. Contrary to intuitive hope, he hoped counterintuitively. Abraham's hope was counterintuitive as we're giving it a definition. It was counter or contrary to normal or natural expectations. For him to perform sexually at nearly 100 years of age and for Sarah to conceive a child at age 90 was contrary to normal expectations or to intuitive expectations. But Abraham did not falter at that apparent evidence of his body that had become effectively dead with respect to sexual reproduction, nor did his faith falter in the face of the deadness or necrosis of Sarah's womb. His hope was against the natural expectations of a couple their age, to say the least. That's why I just laughed, and that's why Sarah laughed in her tent when the Lord said, this time next year, you're going to have a child, and that's why the child's name was Yitzhak Isaac, which means laughter. The Lord said, I heard Sarah laugh in the tent, and she said, I wasn't laughing. Well, you can't get away with that with God. His hope was against, Abraham's was, against the natural expectations of a couple their age. Counterintuitive hope. So is ours. Our hope is counter the intuitive and pseudoscientific expectation of ecocide, E-C-O-C-I-D-E, which is the murder of the planet Earth committed by human culpability. Our hope is not the despair of the pseudoscientific expectation of ecocide. Our hope is for the divine restoration of all things, which all the prophets spoke of through all the course of time, in which God spoke in the mouth of all the prophets with regard to apocatastasis pantone in Acts 3.21. So our hope is counterintuitive. It isn't the pseudoscientific expectation of ecocide. Our hope is for the divine restoration of all things. 
Our hope is not defined by the incomplete conjectures of those who claim to believe in the existential threat, they call it, that climate change poses to planet Earth. When I was in college, they were afraid about global cooling. Our hope is fostered by the scriptures and overflows by the spirit of reality, which is the spirit of Jesus Christ. Our hope is grounded in the Son of God who upholds all things and in whom all the universe is held together in a systemic cohesion. Colossians 1.15 to 17 in connection, of course, with Hebrews 1.3. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, says Psalm 24, reverberating into 1 Corinthians 10. Our hope is for all humanity beyond this life because of the human salvific solidarity with Christ that has been established forever by the obedience of the incarnate Son to the universally salvific will of the Father of mercies. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Again, our hope is for the universe. For we hear with John the eschatological chorus of all creation in Revelation 5.13. And I heard all of creation, that which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and every being that is in them, say, Blessedness and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one and to the Lamb for the age that consists of endless ages. Amen. All of creation is not groaning in vain in expectation of liberation from corruption. For the day of the redemption of the bodies of the sons of God is an inevitable event, an event which brings all of creation into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. And once again, our hope is for the redemption of all of humankind, because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 For he who knew no sin became sin that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is the message of the ambassadors of Christ. And again, God was pleased that all the fullness reside permanently in the son of his love and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Colossians 1.20, in tandem with Hebrews 12.24. Reconcile, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Indeed, this is the mystery of God's great intention, which is too intelligible and therefore counterintuitive to man in his sinful and natural states. So counterintuition is what I'm calling too intelligible for man in his natural state, for me, for you, for all of us. But by God abounding to us in wisdom and prudence, in Ephesians 1.8, he has made known this mystery, which is to recapitulate all of created reality over all time in Jesus Christ, his Son. All of this belongs to an anatomy of hope. Blessed are you if you're inhaling this hope by breathing in the God-breathed word and by allowing the Holy Spirit to cause this hope to overflow in you. For Abraham, 
This counterintuitive hope was grounded in God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Romans 4.17 So that's one of our major aspects of an anatomy of biblical hope. Again, hope is counterintuitive. It involves expectations that would not naturally be or intuitively occur to us. It is humanly intuitive to say things are bad and they're getting worse. It is counterintuitive to expect renaissances in history. And I refer you to increments 148 and 149 and to say that God has all things in control. All things are being held together in Christ. Jesus, God's son, is upholding all things and in fact carrying all things like an offering to a redemptive conclusion by his powerful decree. In times like these, to recall and paraphrase a maxim of Jesse Jackson, that's right, Jesse Jackson, we don't need dope in our veins, we need hope in our brains. Hope is the cryptocurrency of the biblical believer. There are two appearances of God's Messiah that ought to take up a lot of room in the horizon of our hope. But there is a third or middle appearing. When I say third, I don't mean last, but middle appearing. There is a middle appearing, one which should also occupy a large place in the horizon of our mind and imagination. It is Jesus' present appearing in heaven as our great archpriest. The Holy Spirit, through the PT, the author of the Hebrews homily, wants this middle appearing to occupy our attention. And because, you see, lots of Christians remember the first appearing. They expect the second appearing, but they're discouraged in between. So God wants to occupy us with the vision of our great archpriest appearing in heaven for us right now. It is a vision that we need in our mind and imagination. It is Jesus present appearing in heaven as our great archpriest. It is this vision that sustains us. Without this vision, people perish, as Proverbs 29:18 indicates. They are paralyzed in a suspension of animation between the first and second appearances of Messiah. They don't understand or comprehend the totality of the significance of the first appearing. They do not understand the significance of the apparent delay for the second appearing. They're falling apart in the middle time when they should be and when we should be occupied with Jesus Christ as our great archpriest. With this vision of Jesus as our great archpriest, we are sustained and energized in a life of faith, hope, and love. Just as faith, hope, and love is the essential trio of Christian living, so there is a trio of appearances of Jesus, the Messiah, in Hebrews 9. He appeared once in the juncture of the ages, at the climax of the ages, to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9.28a and to put away by the sacrifice of himself sin itself, in Hebrews 9.26. He will appear a second time without sin and to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him, in Hebrews 9.28. But the third appearing, the middle appearing, must also appear 
on the horizon of our souls and minds and hearts. Like hope, the holding center of the trio of theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, the appearing of Jesus in heaven for us as our great archpriest is the holding center of a trio of appearances at a peak revelation in this homily, Hebrews 9:24 to 28. If the attention of the Christian is solely on the first and second coming of Christ without being attentive to this present appearance in future world on our behalf, then we have an incomplete hope and an incomplete Christology. And as the patristic theologian John Chrysostom wrote, and I've referred to this before, in his homilies 21.2, he says, faith gives reality. And that's the word hypostasis. simply means reality. It can mean substance or essence, but it's hypostasis. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Faith gives reality. Reality, hypostasis, to objects of hope, which seem to be unreal. That's why it's counterintuitive. Or rather does not give them reality, but is their very essence. That's one of the most profound quotations of any person I've ever read in my life. And it squares perfectly with Hebrews 11.1. He says again, faith gives reality, hypostasis, to objects of hope, which seem to be unreal, or rather does not give them reality, hypostasis, but is their very essence. Faith means we hold future world right with us and right in us, and we experience it in some measure. Chrysostom realized, evidently counterintuitively, that faith is the very essence of objects of hope. This gives an extraordinary quality to faith, though it could be said that he was being counterintuitive in that definition of faith, he was also being scriptural, for Hebrews 11.1 1 describes faith succinctly as the, as the hypostasis, or the very substance of hope for things, as well as the evidence of things not seen. The scriptures themselves involve a vast amount of counterintuition because they are the record of things that surpass the human imagination. These things include unseen, unseen things and things hoped for. The counterintuitive Christian, therefore, has a conviction of things not seen and an assurance of hoped for things. Hope is indispensable to a definition of faith. There are two senses in which we can take Hebrews 11.1. The first is the objective sense. By the objective sense, faith is the very substance or reality of objects of hope or the things that are hoped for as a result of receiving God's promises. Subjectively speaking, that is speaking of the person or the subject with faith, Faith is the assurance or confidence, another meaning of hypostasis, of hoped for things. So, that concludes hope as counterintuition or counterintuitive. Seventh, hope is to be confessed. The reason for hope. And the many reasons for hope, really, are to be acknowledged to those who ask us about it. 
including magistrates or judges who have asked Christians for that hope and reasons for it in the past, do in the present, and will in the future. Consider Paul's defense before Felix. He said in that defense, quote, having a hope in God which these themselves accept, that is, his Jewish accusers accept the same hope, that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Please note, one resurrection, two classes of people, one outcome of judgment, which we've spoken of before. That quote, incidentally, is from Acts 24:15. There's going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul found it laughingly ironic that his accusers actually believed in the hope that they were accusing him of proclaiming in Jesus Christ, resurrection. And please recall Luke's account of Paul on trial before Agrippa later on, in which Paul said in Acts 26.6, and now, ironically, I'm being judged because of the hope and the promise God made to our fathers. As Paul did, so did many others, and so will many others do, what 1 Peter 3.15 commands. But sanctify the Lord, the Messiah, in your hearts, always prepared to give a speech in defense to those who ask you for an accounting of the hope that is in you, and do it with courtesy and with respect. Eighth, hope is communicable. Those who have it can communicate it like a good disease. And though hope is certainly not a disease, it is often, like grace, a disruption. It disrupts one's existence. It disrupts our despair. It interrupts our simmering hysteria. And sometimes we take pleasure in despair because it's an opportunity for self-pity. We take pleasure in grief because it's an opportunity for self-pity. There is never a time for self-pity in grieving the loss of a loved one. That destroys the purpose of grief and grieving. So hope disrupts our despair in which we sometimes become comfortable and self-piteous. It interrupts our simmering hysteria, our fears and insecurities, whether those fears are personal, ecological, or apocalyptic. That is, in people's conception of apocalyptic. Hope is disruptive because it sobers us up from the binges of self-pity in this life. It wakes us up from our nightmares of the ending of the world in 12 years, like some idiotic politician predicts. Hope is communicated when Christ is preached. Christ Jesus is our hope, 1 Timothy 1.1. And so the psalmist says, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because on your words I have pinned my hope. Psalm 119.74, Septuagint 118.74. You know what every preacher should be able to say when he steps up to the pulpit? He should say about his congregation, those who see me coming rejoice because they know I've pinned my hopes on God's word. And so when he preaches, he communicates hope. Ninth, hope culminates in great reward. Hebrews 10.35, and this is very succinct, this one. So don't throw away your confidence 
which has a great reward. Hebrews 10.35. Because hope is commanded, as we learned in our last increment, those who patiently endure in hope are rewarded by God. Especially when hope is challenged and they hold it against challenges by apparent hopelessness or, persecu- or when they're persecuted by those either with false hopes or no hope and who don't like to be disrupted in their hopelessness. Tenth, hope like Jesus, is to be cleaved to. Now, Mary Magdalene was told by the resurrected Jesus, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended. The reason for this comes into focus in Hebrews, for there we learn that Jesus' work as a priest was not completed until he ascended to heaven and entered in beyond the second veil. Now that he has accomplished eternal redemption and has presented himself and his blood beyond the second veil in the Holy of Holies. He has completed his work as a priest, and we can all touch him. In fact, we are all urged to cleave to him. Because hope is in Christ, and because hope is Christ, it is a living hope, we're going to see. First Peter 1.3 It breathes with the inhale of the God-breathed word, and the exhales come from a spirit-driven, ever-intensifying anticipation of divine good in the form of eternal life in future world. Because hope is a living hope, it is an animating expectation which runs counter to the paralyzing power of fear, dread, and anxiety that grips a society during certain times in history, like our own time. Hope is called good hope, agathos, Elpida Agathon, good hope. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father, loves us and has given to us age-abiding consolation and good hope. Elpida Agathon, E-L-P-I-D-A. Elpida Agathon, A-G-A-T-H. That should sound familiar to you. Agathane, make that. Because recently we dealt with essential goodness that is God running throughout Hebrews and radiating throughout it. So once again, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father, loves us and has given to us age-abiding consolation and good hope by grace. Grace is charis in the Greek, C-H-A-R-I-S. In fact, it's the next C word that defines hope. And in 1 Peter 1.3, it says, Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I want to look carefully at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, and on through verse 22 at this point. If we've pinned our hope in Christ for this life only, Paul said, it would be the most pitiable, we would be the most pitiable of all people. But now Christ has been raised up from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since then, through a man, death came, so also through a man came the resurrection of the dead. For just as in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, this should not be made to understand that we, in other words, this should not be understood to say that there is no hope in Christ for this life only, but it simply says that only in Christ there is hope for this life and for the one to come. If there was only hope for this life in Christ, we would be sacrificing ourselves for what? We would be abstaining from certain things for what? But the point is, in Christ there's hope for this life and for the life to come. In 1 Timothy 4.8, sorry, you guys that like to pump and primp your bodies and work out to the point where you look abnormally muscular, that's not going to cut it in the life to come. It only helps a little bit on this side, might give you five more years of living in this world, might make somebody be impressed with you for about three seconds before they become occupied with themselves again. But bodily exercise and bodily training only helps a little, and godliness helps, however, for both this life and the one to come, First Timothy 4, 8, and especially hope is directed to the resurrection of the dead. We've seen one outcome of divine judgment. In Paul's defense before Felix, once again, he says, having a hope in God which these themselves, his accusers, accept, that there's going to be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous, Acts 24, 15. Now it's important. In this statement before Felix, Paul confesses his hope founded in God and documented in the law and the prophets of the resurrection of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Now listen, he speaks of one resurrection, not two. Both the righteous and the unrighteous shall be raised to life and justification because the righteous one died, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us, U.S., you and me, us, universal salvation, us, to God. 1 Peter 3.18. There is one resurrection of the dead because there is one resurrection from the dead of Jesus who was justified in his own resurrection and raised for the justification of all humankind. There is one universal resurrection harvest, and there is one firstfruits of that harvest, namely Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.20 and 15.23. There is one outcome of resurrection, and that is life, one outcome of judgment, and that's justification, rectification, and glorification. There is one outcome of divine judgment because all judgment, including the judgment of the prince of this world in John 12, 31 and 16, 7 to 11, was drawn to Jesus on the cross. There are two classes of people, righteous and unrighteous. In one sense, Jesus is the only righteous, and we're all, the rest, are the unrighteous. But in another sense, that line runs through us all, meaning that all of humanity is a mixture of good or rect rectifying or the kind of deeds that we might call rectitude or moral goodness and evil deeds. We've all done both. 
There is one outcome of resurrection, but there are almost infinite outcomes in terms of reward. That's another subject coming up. Those who will have hoped in God to the end will have great reward in the kingdom of God, especially if they would have held, will have held on to hope against all apparent evidence to the contrary, against temptation to despair or to cave in or to hopelessness, and against the pseudoscientific consensus of political morons and against the sometimes fierce adversity of the rulers and the ruled of this evil age. Because we have the ministry of priests and because we see Jesus in 2 Corinthians 3.18 to 4.1 and because we have received mercy, we do not faint. We do not give up hope the hope that is founded in God and in his word and that overflows by the Spirit and is both incarnate and indwelling in us. It is incarnate in Jesus. It is indwelling in us. Our hope is founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and it looks to the resurrection of the dead when the justified will be glorified and the unjust will be rectified when the oppressed and persecuted will receive justice and the persecutors will receive righteousness, when all things and all beings and all people in the heavens and on earth and through all the span of time will be reconciled and live simultaneously and peaceably in future world, and may I add, in liberty and freedom. Eleventh, hope. is a good hope by charis. We've already referred to that, C-H-A-R-I-S, grace. Because the hope that God gives us is intrinsically good, agathos. It is the kingdom cryptocurrency that makes the poor in spirit truly rich. It is the spirit of grace who engenders hope and then causes hope to overflow in us to the degree that it is communicated through us to others. Galatians 5.5, 5, again, is also monumental. We, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness. We, through the Spirit, meaning we wait for the realization of the hope of rectification, the rectification called deorthosis in Hebrews 9.10, the setting right, the making right, and the setting right of all things and all beings and all creatures and all humankind. Our hope is certain, for it's grounded in God and in Christ, and it is given by grace. We don't hope for that which we see, neither do we hope for that which we do not believe will happen. Moreover, we do not hope for that which we cannot envision with the eyes of our heart and imagination. The Holy Spirit, therefore, portrays to the eyes of our heart Jesus he is always with us, and he will always keep kindling hope. Psalm 71.14, Septuagint 70.14, says this, But as for me, I will always hope and will add to all your praise. Twelfth, and finally, hope in a word is Christ. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor as our hope, as our destiny, as the destiny of all humanity and all of creation, all of time and history. Seeing Jesus, we see the hope that is before us, set before us, as Hebrews 6.18 says.
Before us in the scriptures, we have an anatomy of hope. Seeing Jesus crowned with glory and honor is seeing our future. Therefore, Jesus is our hope incarnate. Christ Jesus is our hope. Christ in and among us is the hope of glory. Our hope is in the region beyond the second veil where Jesus is because our hope is Jesus. Christ Jesus is our hope in 1 Timothy 1.1. Christ in you is the hope of glory in Colossians 1.27, Romans 5.3. It is an anchor for the soul in Hebrews 6.19. It is Jesus himself beyond the second veil as a forerunner for us. Now, I want to close with an addendum, which I call Atlat, and I've said that many times before. The final part of any doctrine, in my view, is Atlat, on the level of our time. This is a little acronym I use in my study. Atlat. We have to ask ourselves in the 21st century, what is our hope? In Psalm 39.7, the psalmist asks, Now, Lord, what am I waiting for? Most of life is waiting. What am I waiting for? Then he, sa- then he states, my hope is in you. Now that's an English translation of the Masoretic Hebrew text. But I'm not confused. I'm actually intrigued when I read the Septuagint, which seems to vary in meaning. The Septuagint, Psalm 38.8, which is the Septuagint version of Psalm 39.7, presents an interesting variation. But is it so much a variation? Psalm 38.8 as I translate it from the Greek, and as I get a little help from Pirtisma and others, it says, and now, what is my perseverance? He didn't say, what is my hope? He says, what is my perseverance? And then he, uh, then he answers, is it not the Lord? Isn't the Lord himself my perseverance? The perseverance of the saints, as Calvin called it, is really the perseverance of the Lord. And from you, he goes on to say, is my assurance. And guess what word that is? Hupostasis, same word as in Hebrews 11.1. And from you is my assurance. Now that word hupostasis can either objectively mean my very reality, my substance, my existence, or subjectively it can mean my assurance or my confidence. So the reality, hupostasis, that we had at the beginning in Hebrews 3.14, is simply the faith which the Holy Spirit engendered and the hope which the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, inspired in us who initially heard the gospel. That faith and hope that we have and that we had at the beginning to which we are urged to hold on until the end. That's all. That's our one job. Instead of highlighting the differences between the English text, which comes from the Hebrew text of Psalm 39.8, or 39.7 rather, and the Greek text of Psalm 38.8, I'd rather engage in a dialectic of the two, and it proves enlightening every time. Instead of saying, and now, Lord, what am I waiting for? The Septuagint has, now, Lord, what is my perseverance? A comparison of the two would associate waiting and perseverance and be entirely in line with the concept of the perseverance of hope 
in 1 Thessalonians 1.3. And it would be entirely in keeping with and in alignment with the necessity of adding perseverance to confidence in Hebrews 10.35-36. Moreover, that the psalmist's hope is in the Lord in both renditions, agrees with the perseverance of hope being in Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and in line with the truth in Revelation 1.9 that Christian perseverance is the perseverance of Jesus in the Christian. Not I living, but Christ living in me. We call this, and I have in previous messages, you might recall, our one job. Hope is kept alive by an inhale. And that's what you're doing right now, listening to the word, listening to the anatomy of hope, part two, under the Holy Spirit, prayerfully asking him to enlighten you with his word. So hope is kept alive by an inhale and an exhale in the soul. We inhale hope as we take in the scriptures, the God-breathed word, on a regular basis, as the Spirit breathes the word into us, and we exhale by a participation in Christ's faithfulness and by the strengthened, the more and more confident, in other words, expectation, until hope becomes absolute assurance, immovable confidence, unchallenged and fully established, it becomes the plenary manifestation of hope in immovability. The one job, this one job, is put into colorful form once again by Moltmann. He said this, quote, The essential thing at present is to perceive in all things and in all the complexes and interactions of life, the driving forces of God's Spirit, and to sense in our own hearts the yearning of the Spirit for the eternal life of the future world. i got to say that again. That's an exquisite quote that lines up with Titus 1-2, Titus 3-7, the expectation of eternal life. This kind of sums up what we should be doing right now, our one job, and it sums up the anatomy of hope. And so this one form, this one job is put into usual, as usual, colorful form once again by Jürgen Moltmann. Quote, the essential thing at present, on the level of our time, see, the essential thing at present is to perceive in all things and in all the complexes and interactions of life the driving forces of God's spirit and to sense in our own hearts, I might add counterintuitively, the yearning of the Spirit for the eternal life of the future world. So we have in the Scriptures, as we're going to see down the road a little, we have in the Scriptures certain exemplars of hope. The faith heroes of Hebrews 11 operated in a faith that's defined as the substance of things hoped for. In anticipation of that chapter, on the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrew, we have Hebrews 6, 12 to 15. 6, 12 to 15 anticipates Hebrews 11, 1 to 40. And 1 to 40 anticipates Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, the ultimate exemplar of faith, Jesus himself. So, again, 
In anticipation of that chapter on the great cloud of witnesses, we have Hebrews 6, 12 to 15 coming up fairly soon in our study. And that speaks of imitating those who through faith and perseverance come into possession of the promises. Hebrews 6, 13 to 15 gives the specific example that again is coming up of the exemplar Abraham who came into a full assurance of a promise that was infinitely fortified by a divine oath. We'll see how the promise is fortified and certified by an oath. Two things, and this is the last part of our message, our anatomy of hope. And again, obviously, this is an incomplete anatomy. And the anatomy of hope really runs throughout the course of my entire ministry for now 42 years, and hopefully it will continue on. So this is just kind of a new bounce for it, a new exhortation related to it in the new light of our recent insights. So in closing, two things have been supported and fortified by a divine oath in this upcoming section. First, the promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in his seed. That was such a sure promise that it was fortified by an oath in Genesis 22:16 to 18. And second, we will find that the oracle, that Jesus is the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that oracle is also supported and fortified by a divine oath. The promise to Abraham and the oracle in Psalm 110:4 to Jesus are linked in Hebrews 6:18. Consequently, the oath-fortified promise that in Abraham's seed all the nations, meaning all of mankind, will be blessed. You can compare that with Galatians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 15.22. And the oath-fortified oracle that declared Jesus to be a priest forever like Melchizedek, that promise to Abraham fortified by an oath, that oracle to Jesus fortified by an oath, are linked in such a way that Jesus himself the ultimate exemplar of faith, is the guarantee and the guarantor of all the nations being blessed. So once again, Jesus is our hope. I hope you see him, and I hope you see your hope in him. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Rivet these truths into our soul, for there are many that have been associated with an anatomy of hope, parts one and two. And let this be a larger picture that will allow us to focus on the smaller target that we're about to engage in, the exegesis of Hebrews 6, 11 through 20, before we get into the central section of Hebrews in which a priestly Christology is brought to us with power. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.